You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 35. What we've been seeing in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, if you've been with us or if you're joining us today, is Jesus has been displaying his authority and showing us what his kingdom is like. And he's been doing it in two ways. And the first way has been him announcing uh, verbally the kingdom of God, my messiahship, my reign looks like this. And Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and in chapters 9, what we've seen is Jesus not only just announcing what his kingdom is going to be like, but now he's been putting his kingdom in animation. Here's what it actually looks like. Me raising the dead. Me giving sight to the blind. Me healing lepers. Paralyzed men getting up and walking. This is what my kingdom looks like here and now, and this is what it's going to look like in the future forever. So come to me and welcome to my kingdom. Well, now what we see today is Jesus with his 12 disciples. And really what he's going to do now is he's going to turn to them and say, hey, you guys are my learners. You guys are in discipleship with me. I'm training you. I'm teaching you. It's your turn. Go. And he sends them on mission. And Jesus now, he sends us as a church, as his disciples, as his people, on mission with him. He's saying to us today, it's your turn. So let's begin reading in verse 35. And if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word as you do every week. Jesus says to his disciples, beginning in verse 35, as Matthew writes, Jesus continued, so what he's been doing all along, going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles. And don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet 
when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us now. Help us to hear your word, to hear what you want from us, to hear what you want for us, and would you empower us now with your spirit to live for you here and now, for your kingdom, for your glory. Help us, King Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've, uh, I've had a lot of jobs in my 34 years on this earth so far. My first job ever was at Wendy's. I worked the counter I made fries, I made Frosties, super simple. It just comes in a bag, you dump it in a machine, that's it. I was a busboy at Outback Steakhouse. I built trophies at some sports store. I've done telemarketing. That was the shortest job I ever had, a day and a half with that bad boy. I've counted bolts and screws, I've measured them, weighed them, boxed them, shipped them. But out of all those kinds of odds and end weird jobs that I've had over the years, I only worked at one of them long enough to become a trainer. And I was at Starbucks. I got to show new baristas how to make a simple pot of coffee, how to use the cash register, and how to make frappuccinos. It's incredibly easy. You just follow the recipe card. But the tricky one, the, the one that makes everyone nervous that's a new employee at Starbucks, is how to use that machine that shoots out steam and warms milk and makes little shots of espresso. And there's a recipe for all of these drinks. So I'm going to give you some insider secrets for all these drinks. Oh, not all of them. We'll do one. We don't have time for all of them. It's hot in here. We're going to do one drink. So getting a vanilla latte at Starbucks, here's what happens. How much vanilla goes in it? The tall size, which is the small actually, gets one pump of vanilla. The grande, which is the medium size, gets two pumps of vanilla. The Venti size, the big boy, he gets three pumps of vanilla. Sometimes they do four. Sometimes it's two, three, four. It depends on the drinks, but I think it is normally going to be two, three, four. Caramel macchiatos, one, two, three. It's already getting confusing. This is why it's hard to work at Starbucks. Now, you get the pumps down, where they go, how they go in. Now you got to do the espresso shots. So how many espresso shots? Okay, tall gets one shot of espresso. Grande gets two shots of espresso, and the eager new employee goes, and the venti gets three? Wrong. It only gets two. It's very tricky. So you got to teach them and train them over and over and over how to do this. And then when they're making their first drink, you're like, okay, go ahead. It's your turn. I showed you. Go. And they start doing it, and they look at me. Dump that. And they have to throw it away. Start again. They do it again. They mess up. This is like a real person drink. Okay, get out of the way. And I just start doing it real quick. Okay, you got to do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And then they look at you the whole time. And finally you start to nod. You got it. You got it. You've had jobs like this where you've been in some kind of training situation. And then now eventually they tell you, you got to do it now. And what do you feel? Are you sure? I'm not ready for this. And they say, you are. It's time. What we just saw in Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus taking his disciples, the guys he's been training, the guys he's been teaching, the guys he's been empowering, and he looks at them and says, it's your turn. You gotta go out there and do it. Now it's your turn. This is a part of life. It's a part of the job. And listen, this is a part of Christianity. 
Beloved, being a disciple of Jesus isn't just watching Jesus do stuff. And it isn't just believing Jesus can do stuff. It's believing and knowing and living that Jesus is going to do stuff through me now. See, discipleship, we've been talking about, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, that is the most common phrase used for Christians. The the word Christian is not used the most often to describe who you are in Christ. The word disciple is used most. And discipleship is an apprenticeship, a learnership, an internship with Jesus, where he teaches us, he models for us, and then he says, you're up, your turn. But, But what happens in churches like ours far too often is that Christians just watch ministry happen. They watch it happen from the stage. They watch pastors do it. They watch a handful of other people do it. But it's not supposed to be that way. So so hear me. I, I want you to hear me on this. If the only expression of your Christianity is coming here, singing songs, listening to a sermon, and doing it again next week, you are not living the Christian life. If that is the only expression of your Christianity, is coming here, singing, hearing me, and doing it again, that is not, you are not living the Christian life. That is a Christian morning, I'll give you that. That is not the Christian life. Your whole life is to be based and lived on a discipleship with Jesus of Nazareth, where you're hearing his words and then you're doing his words. Disciples are doers of ministry with Jesus. So hear me, every Christian's called to evangelize, all of you, to spread the good news of the crucified and risen Christ. Every Christian is called to do good works for their neighbors, coworkers, to love others as themselves. Every Christian is called to do all of this in community with the church. And listen, beloved, our, our church, what scares me the most over these 10 years and beyond is that we will continue to be a church that primarily grows through transfer growth from church to church. I'm grateful for every Christian that's come here from another church uh, that's looking for a home, that's moved. I'm grateful for that. Every Christian needs a home church. But we cannot just be a health spa for Christians. Our church will be a failure if that's all we are where we're pampered on Sundays and then sent out throughout the week. No, we need to be a base for a mission where we're being equipped, we're being trained and encouraged and exhorted, and then we're sent out. That, and that's what we see here today, how Jesus sends his disciples, and now he sends us, his disciples, on mission with him and on, on mission with each other too. And the first step in, in seeing that is that we got to see that five things about being on a mission, being a church on mission with Jesus, is that we are an extension of his compassion. We, you and I, we are extensions of his compassion. Look at verse 35 in chapter 9. So Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This is what he's been doing in chapters 8 and 9, and he's still he's continuing to do this. And I love that Matthew points out he's in towns and villages. That's really cool because he's going to the cities and the sticks. He's going to the respectable parts of town and the slums. And he's doing the same stuff. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's opening the scriptures that we see in Luke chapter 4 and telling them, this is about me, the kingdom's here. And look what else he's doing. He's doing word ministry and works 
work ministry. He's healing. But notice what's happening behind the scenes in Jesus' heart and emotions. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion is what Jesus sees. And why? Matthew tells us he sees the people. They're distressed, dejected, beaten down, lost. They're at the end of their rope just trying to make it. And Jesus sees them and he has compassion. And he describes it as he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. What's Matthew getting at there? They're lost. Like sheep on a field, lost with no one to lead them. They're wandering around, confused. Jesus surveys these crowds and says they're lost. They're willing to follow whatever comes along. And if sheep don't have a shepherd, here's what happens to these sheep. They have no protection. They're vulnerable. They have no provision. They are looking to be filled, and they'll just eat whatever they can. What Matthew does with this little comment, showing us that Jesus is filled with compassion, is it's easy for us to talk about uh, wanting to be like Jesus with the sins that we should avoid and the things we shouldn't do. Matthew says, let's talk about being like Jesus with the emotions we should feel. We should feel compassion for the lost. Jesus sees them and his heart swells with compassion. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't wag his finger. He doesn't grumble and complain about the crowds to disciples. Ugh, these people, they don't get it. They're clueless. What's their deal? Don't they understand what marriage is? Don't they know that alcohol will ruin your body if you drink it that way? No, no, no. Jesus has compassion on them. This is, this is to be the response to the shepherdless people in our lives. What's yours? The people in your family that are lost and confused. You know why? It's because they don't have a shepherd. The people in your workplace that are trying to find satisfaction in the dirt because no one has showed them where the green pasture of grace is. Do you get cranky or compassionate with the lost? Of course the world thinks the way they do about marriage. They don't have a shepherd. You would think that way too if it were not for Jesus. Of course that's how they think about romance and gender and the family, the womb, the elderly, the immigrants, other races, entertainment, alcohol, money, because they are without a shepherd. And listen, beloved, as Paul tells us in Titus 3, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, distressed, and dejected, we may say. We were enslaved by various passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We were hateful. We were detesting one another. But when the goodness and kindness of our good shepherd, God our Savior, appeared and his love for mankind, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. That's our story. We forget that we didn't come out of the womb doing Bible studies, loving Jesus, and singing Amazing Grace. We were distressed and dejected. We forget our past. 
we forget what we would be like without Jesus. We forget that it's his compassion and kindness that led us to repentance. See, Jesus has a heart for the lost. He sees them and his heart moves. And he sees you. Maybe you feel like you've made a mess of your life. Maybe you feel like God is ready to hit the launch button of his wrath on you. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, that his compassion took him there and his compassion will forgive you and bring you to new life. His compassion for sinners is what saves them. And listen, church, Jesus' compassion on sinners is what sends you on mission, is what sends you out. Notice what Jesus does next after it says he has compassion. Look, what happens next after the compassion of Christ is manifested in the text? Verse 37, he tells his disciples, the harvest is abundant. Pray for workers to go out into the harvest. What does Jesus do next? 10-1, he sends his disciples out on mission. So Jesus has compassion. What does he do? He sends his disciples out. They are an extension of his compassion on the lost. And so are you. So am I. Jesus sends us out at the end of this book, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. You are an extension of Christ's compassion on this world. Jesus sees the crowds in your office. And you are there because of Christ's compassion on them. Jesus sees the crowds in your neighborhood and your gym and your family that are shepherdless. And do you know why you are there? Because of Christ's compassion on sinners. You must begin to think that way. Not just clocking in the nine to five, punching in, punching out, doing the normal humdrum of family activities, grumbling the whole time that you would see yourself as, I am a 3D animation of the compassion of Christ in the here and now. Our church, this church is here because Christ has compassion on our city. That's why we exist. Not just to be a cool Bible study club, but to be a place where Christ's love could be made known to the lost. So instead of us thinking poorly of the sinners we know, we should feel compassion and eager to tell them about the good shepherd. So I want to ask you. I want to ask you to pray that God would grow you in compassion. Before evangelism strategies, before how-tos, we pray. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Pray for workers. Look at verse 37 and 38. His compassion is there. Then what does he do? He turns with compassion in his heart to his disciples. Verse 37. The harvest is abundant The workers are few. Therefore, verse 38, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Plentiful harvest. Workers are few. And Jesus doesn't say, so so preach for God to send them out. Do a missions sermon series for God to send them out. Strategize. No, we do all those things. But Jesus says, first, pray for God Send them out. Only God can send out workers. Only God can change your mindset to see that you already are a worker. 
pray for workers. That's the first thing Jesus says to do. But that's usually the last thing we think to do. All we can do now is pray. Jesus says, no, pray first. Because at the heart of every revival is people praying. At the heart of someone who has confessed faith in Christ, what has happened behind that is people praying. So when when is the last time, think about your own life, when is the last time you prayed for God to save someone? When is the last time you prayed for God to send someone to the nations, for God to send someone to plant a church? And if we're honest with ourselves, I, I, I wonder if could our lack of these prayers be because we fear we might be the answer. God, send someone to save my boss. If only a Christian could get in their path. Oh yeah, that's me. God, would you, would you save someone? Would, someone just, would you send someone to save my sister-in-law? Someone to just share the gospel with her. Oh yeah, me. Pray for compassion. And then pray for God to send workers into his harvest. And I love that Jesus uses this analogy. There's two things I just want to point out to you about it that are so good. That notice about that phrase from Jesus. Jesus, the harvest is plentiful the workers are few, harvest is abundant. First thing, harvest. Okay, think about what he's saying just by the word harvest alone. It's ready. It's done. There's no, there's no planting. There's no tilling. There's no seeding. No, none of that imagery is mentioned. He says the harvest is plentiful. All you got to do now is put your hands out. All you got to do now is just grab, put them in the bag. It's like when I make my kids lunches every day for school. I take the bread out, I take out the peanut butter, I take out the jelly, I get their chips, I get their applesauce, I get their juice box, I make all these things, I bag all these things, I have them all laid out for them. I just tell them I'm not putting it in your lunchbox. Take some ownership, put it in the lunchbox yourself. That's it. And all they have to do, it's all ready. All they got to do is just come by and just slide it all into their lunchbox. The harvest is plentiful. Just take it. This is what Jesus is saying. God's sovereign grace is going to do all the work, has done all the work, prepared all the work, and there it is, plentiful and in abundance. All I'm asking you to do now is to play your part in the family business of the kingdom of God as a co-heir of grace with me and stick your hands out. Harvest. Workers. Pray for workers. I love that Jesus didn't say, and pray for God to send out pastors into his harvest. Pray for God to send out seminary professors. Pray for God to send out prophets and deacons and Bible scholars. No, none of that. He says, pray for God to send out day laborers. Pray for God to send out workers. We all qualify for this task. Whether you've been a Christian for a year or you've been one for four decades, you are a qualified and equipped and prepared and called worker bee in the kingdom of God. Get to buzzing. Jesus is calling you, and Jesus is empowering you for the task, and he's given you a team to be on mission with the, the, the church, or to be on mission in community. That's what Jesus does next. He tells them, pray for God to send out workers. What does Jesus do? I'm sending out some workers. He gathers his 12 disciples. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 4. So summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. You can see in verse 5, Jesus sent out these 12. 
He sends out this group of ragtag guys. And listen, the world can be a lonely place, but the church isn't meant to be. Ministry and evangelism and engaging the world, it can feel overwhelming, but that's why Jesus gave us each other for the task. And notice these groups of twos. First, verse two, first, Simon is called Peter, Andrew is brother. James, son of Zebedee, John is brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. So they're kind of in these groups, and some scholars talk about that he probably sent them out in groups of two to go. And we see it elsewhere in the Gospels that now his group has grown to 70, and he sends out the 70 in groups of two to go. You know why? Because mission happens best in community. We push each other. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. When you're around certain Christians, or just change it, when you're around certain friends and you're, you're both eating healthy, and you go to that restaurant together, and you want that double meat where the bread's gone and it's just more bacon slices. You, you want to get that and the bacon fries and the bacon sauce and the bacon soda. You want all of it. And, but your friend orders first. Oh, I'll have a salad dressing on the side. Like, dressing on the side, my goodness. You're even going crazy with the dressing. And you think, yeah, I'll have a salad too. Because you're encouraged by their going forward. When you're working out with a friend, you want to run farther. You don't want to give up so quickly. You want to lift more. You want to lift heavier. You want to keep going. The same thing is true in the Christian life. As we are training together for godliness, as we're both running the race together, there are around, you are, the Christians that you're around that you want to evangelize when they're around, be around them more. Have those kinds of friends. When I, there are certain Christians that I'm around, I feel more zealous. I, I feel more excited. I, I, I want to pray more. I want to read more. I want to evangelize more. Get those kinds of friends. But we've got to have our priorities straight. In verses 2 through 4 in chapter 10, something should have jumped out to you. That's very cool about priorities being straight. Now, there were two sets of brothers. That was neat, but that's not the big thing that jumps out. It's Matthew and Simon. And look at the descriptors of their names. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. So Matthew, we talked about a couple weeks ago, he's an employee of the Roman Empire, an Israelite that's working for the evil empire. And Simon, the zealot, the zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Israel to its former glory. So if you catch that, you could not have two totally different political opposite mindsets here. Right wing and left wing colliding in community in Christ together on mission. This, this, is, this would be like having somebody who is a, an Iraqi tax auditor and an ISIS guerrilla fighter. Now they're on the same team. You know why? Because kingdom first. They were not politics first. And too many Christians in our area are politics first. It's got to be one of the greatest, saddest idols of our day. These two guys could serve together, love each other, be on the same mission together. And some of us can't even stand to have a Facebook friend that would have a different political view than us. And my word to that would be grow up. If you couldn't be in a small group with someone who differs politically or go on a mission trip with someone who differs politically, then you aren't kingdom first. You're not Christ first. 
You're America first, and that's heresy. We aren't called to make America great again. We're called to live for the kingdom of Christ. And our differences get dwarfed by what unites us. Christ and his kingdom, the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting, that's our mission. And we do this mission, next thing, in word and in works. Uh, The mission happens in word and in works. Look look at verse 5. Look what Jesus sends them out to do. Verse 5. He tells them, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, verse 6, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, word, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mission and word. Now mission and works, good works. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. So Jesus sent them out with these instructions and he says, first, go to Israel. Don't go to Gentiles yet. Don't go to Samaritan towns yet. That, to us, we read that and go, why? That sounds like Jesus is being restrictive. No, he's being very wise here. What's he telling them to do? Go out and proclaim the kingdom is here. The Messiah is here. The Gentiles have no category for a prophesied Messiah who's from the line of King David. Romans don't care about that. They're gonna care about a king who rose from the dead. But Gentiles, they don't have any categories for prophecies being fulfilled, for what Isaiah talked about, for for a Messiah. But the Jewish people do. So Jesus says, go to them. I want the descendants of Abraham to hear that the one who was promised has arrived. I want the physical descendants of Abraham to become the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So go to them first, and then, then we'll go to the Gentiles. As he says in the Great Commission, he will say, go to all nations in just a few chapters after he rises from the dead. But, but look, look at their ministry, verses seven and eight. Proclaim the gospel, perform miracles. You can summarize it this way. Their mission is word ministry and a works ministry, good works. Tell the people the kingdom's here, the Christ is here, tell them about my death and resurrection to come, that they can be saved and love your neighbor as yourself. Heal. Cast out demons, raise the dead. I know some of us could read that and think, uh, are we supposed to do those things now? I know we're supposed to proclaim the excellencies who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, but now am I supposed to do these things? These disciples did these things. They healed people, cast out demons, raised the dead. We know they did these things. You can keep reading. They do them. You can read the book of Acts. They do them. And you know why? Because Jesus gave them these gifts we see in 10.1, he gave them this authority to do it, these gifts to do it. So what about us? Whatever gifts Jesus has given you by the power of the Holy Spirit, do them. He's give, he gave them these gifts, they did it. He has given each and every Christian in this room by the power of his spirit, he has given you gifts. And whatever Jesus calls you to do with those gifts, use them. Do it for his glory. As Peter says, just as each one has received a gift, you have one. Use it to serve others. Are you? You gotta ask yourself. Only you can really answer this question. Am I using my spiritual gift? Something that is is not a part of my personality, but now it is something that has been supernaturally wired into, it is now an amalgam of who I am. It's, I can't lose it, I can't forget it. Now Jesus has given me this and I'm gonna use it for his glory and for his namesake. Are you using it? 
as, as a good steward of his varied grace. It's, we have a variety of gifts. They're all different. One's not better than the other. He says, as one who speaks, let him, speaks, let him speak God's word. One who serves, let it serve from the strength that God provides. Why? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything. See, Jesus wants you to see that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. You're not just somebody who now affirms truth that's in a book. You now have someone living inside of you that is at work in you to establish the name and fame of Jesus Christ as his compassion swells in you, as his words fly out of your mouth, and as you do his works with your hands. So will you use your gifts for his glory? Do you know what they are? When you, when you drop your kids off at soccer, use your spiritual gifts there. These spiritual gifts are used in two ways. One, to build up the body of Christ. Yes, and also to do ministry outside these walls, outside our small groups. Word and works. And we gotta do both. Word and works. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel is a message that is creating a new world order. That's why Jesus is also doing all these miracles, raising the dead, healing the blind, healing the paralyzed, because the gospel is creating a new society, a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem, a new earth. And some of us, whether it's word or work, some of us will gravitate towards one or the other. Some of us will find word ministry, um, evangelizing, explaining the Bible. Some of us will find that so easy, we gravitate to it, no problem. Some of us, see that and go, I can't, I can't do it. I, I, I can't, I don't know how I'm going to say it. I don't know how I'm going to get it out. Listen, you have to. There's no way around it. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hear these words of mine and do them. Disciples are doers of the word of Christ, not just affirmers. That's what the whole book of James is. Don't be like the person who looks into the mirror of God's word, sees what he looks like, but then doesn't act on it. He's like a man who forgets what he looks like. So if you struggle with leaning into word ministry, pray for compassion. Pray for the spirit to be at work in you and step out in faith. Now on the other side, some of us, we find word ministry so easy. The rest of us, we find the good works ministry, loving our neighbors, serving others. We find that impossible. No, I, I'm a word guy. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Bible study teacher. I'm, I'm more of an evangelist. I don't do the, I don't fold clothes at the Tom O'Prancy Center. I, I don't counsel people at team. Um, I don't love my Muslim coworker. I can't do that. It's not happening. No, it has to. You, you gotta do it. Blessed are those who hear these words of mine and do them. Our danger in a church like ours is believing the, the right things, but then picking and choosing the things we want to live. You cannot pick and choose the things you want to live in the Bible. That is the epitome, definition, of liberal Christianity. It's picking and choosing what we want to live and do and believe. No, real Christianity, a real discipleship with Jesus of Nazareth says, I take it all, Lord. Where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. So we hear your words and we do what you say. Because we're being trained by him. We're learning from him. We're imitating him. And he's telling us, it's your turn. Make the drinks. Speak the word. Do the good works. And hear me, I, I know that being on mission with Jesus and that he's at work in us and, and at work through us is gonna be challenging. J Jesus says so at the end. That's why he says, keep going. Keep going. 
It's going to be hard, but keep going. At the end of this passage, he talks about how difficult it's going to be to be on mission for him. They're going to have money problems. You're going to be tempted. Some Christian leaders get tempted with money. They've seen it all over the news. Um, and only you see people selling coins, uh, prayer coins, and all that kind of garbage. Secondly, Jesus says you're going to be rejected. Just know that. If you share the gospel enough, you are going to be rejected by people. You're going to have people make fun of you and hate you. Just know that. And, and if you can't really ever think of a time where you've been rejected by someone because of what you said about Christ, that should be a, a, that should be a thermometer for you for how hot or cold you are with the things of Christ. You share the gospel enough, you'll be rejected. You share the gospel enough, it'll be received. You'll see it happen. You'll see people come to faith right before your eyes and be born again. But you'll also be rejected. That's why Jesus says to be wise at the end of this passage, go into this house, go into that, and people receive you, spend time with them, but people don't receive you. What does Jesus say? We've all heard this phrase, kick the dust off, knock the dust off your feet. If people aren't receptive, they keep changing the conversation, don't bring it back, move on. Wait, maybe it's later. That phrase that Jesus says, knock the dust off your feet, it is not one of those, oh, they're nothing, just knock the dust off and keep going. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, don't take that with you. Leave it there. Go on to the next conversation. Go on to the next place. Go on to the next meeting with somebody. Don't, because if you hold on to that rejection, you hold on to those and it's always in your mind, you will get quicksanded by it and you will never be faithful in ministry again. You'll never be faithful in sharing the gospel again. I can illustrate it for you. Just two, two Uber drivers that I've had over the last year or so. Lawson and I were both in this Uber for a conference and one was super receptive to the gospel. He was, he was a Muslim. And we got in the car, and he's like, oh, why are you in town? Why are you in Louisville? Oh, we're here for a conference. Uh, it's called, it's for, mainly for pastors. It's called Together for the Gospel. He's like, oh, what's it about? Okay, let's talk. And so we start talking about the gospel. We start talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and his death and resurrection, how he saves us from our sins. And as a Muslim, he was so interested by it that, okay, tell me more about Jesus. And I said, did Muhammad do anything like that for you? Did he willingly die for your sins and rise again from the dead and and free you from what enslaves you? He said, no, and I want that. I said, then all you got to do is believe and you'll be saved. And we got to our stop at Quill's Coffee. I said, no, I don't want to get out. We just kept talking. And I said, listen, we're going to get coffee real quick. I'm going to call you again. And when I call you, you better be a Christian by the time you pick me up, okay? Okay, I'll try. I'm trying. So just believe, man. And we got out, got our coffee, met a couple people, and we call him. He comes and picks us up. Are you a Christian yet? It's the first thing I said when we got in the car. No, I'm trying. We kept talking more. But as we got towards the end, he, when he was told that you have to pick the way, you can't remain a Muslim and ascribe to the teachings of Muhammad and also hold Christ. He said, I, I don't know if I can do that. So I prayed for him this week. God, I hope someone else, I don't know how I'll see him again, but God save him. And then just a few months ago, another Uber driver, another Muslim cab driver, his name was Ibrahim. Hey, Ibrahim, you know what your name sounds like? Has anyone ever told you? Abraham. You know about Abraham? Mm, yeah, a little bit. We, he's like, yeah, Muslims, we talk about Abraham. I said, yeah, and I'm a Christian. Oh, what do you believe about Abraham? So we talked about Abraham and the Messiah. 
And he said, why are you in town? I said, for this conference called the Gospel Coalition. What's that about? Well, let me tell you. The, con- the theme of the conference was conversations with Jesus. So I guess we're going to have a conversation about Jesus now. I said, Abraham, have you ever heard about the woman at the well? No. What is that? See, listen, this is something we take for granted. That in the United States, that people know these Bible stories. There are people all around you who have never heard some of these Bible stories that we take for granted. One of the most famous, John chapter 4, woman at the well. So to Ibrahim, it's in the New Testament. Jesus meets this woman in the middle of the day who's at this well getting water. And she's there when no one else is there because she's a scandalous woman. She's been rejected. She's an outcast. She's been with a lot of people. No one wants to be around her. But Jesus goes right towards her and tells her how she could be forgiven of all of her sins, how she could have new life in him and in him alone. Because he's not just a good teacher, but he is the son of God. He is God. He's the word of God made flesh in a body. Mm. Yeah, we don't believe that. Yeah, I know. We believe different stuff about Jesus. He wasn't receptive. So what, what do you do? So how long have you been in Indianapolis? How long have you been working here? Just knock the dust off. He, he doesn't want to talk about it. He's not receptive. He, he could just tell. Like, all right, man, we can talk about something else and move on. Next Uber driver, next coffee shop conversation, next whatever. Don't let it bother you. Keep going. Keep proclaiming the word. Keep doing the good works. Be filled with compassion. Pray and go together. You are in training mode with Jesus. And some of us, we've been in our two-week training for two decades now. And some of us, we got, we're still, we are always in training with Jesus, but he's training us in different things all along the way. And some of us just need to be told, Go. It's, it's time. He can lead you. And he'll always be with you. Let's pray together. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.